podcast of the Leeds Centre for Dante Studies. In this short series of podcasts, Ruth Chester, a doctoral candidate at the University of Leeds, explores some of the key ideas which informed Dante's religious thought. An introduction to the concepts of form and matter. The concepts of form and matter have a long history within philosophical and later theological debates. They have been explored as a necessary pair and as individual concepts within the philosophical branches of natural science and metaphysics. In this podcast, I'll be giving you a basic introduction to the relationship of form and matter and some of the other important terms which surround this relationship, as well as telling you about how the concepts develop over time. The concepts of form and matter and their most basic formulation is largely attributed to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle's way of thinking centred around finding the most basic and fundamental principles of things and his thought ranged from natural science and metaphysics to logic and mathematics, from rhetoric and poetics to ethics and politics. On the question of form and matter, we can say that the discussion begins by asking the two questions what is a thing made out of and what makes a thing what it is. To begin with the first question, what is a thing made out of, it may sound like a question with an obvious answer. For example, I can look at a table and say, well, it's made out of wood, or look at a pot and say, it's made out of clay. But for Aristotle, this is not enough. What I have identified here as wood and clay is termed by Aristotle proximate matter. Matter when it already is something. Aristotle posits a layer of matter below this, and this is the idea of primary matter. Matter which is not instantiated or not made physical in any specific way. This is the substratum of all material things, and obviously it's therefore quite a hard thing to imagine, precisely as it is not a thing at all. It is shapeless, unknowable, and most importantly, without form. The answer to the second question, what makes a thing what it is, is form. Form is conceived of as what makes a thing the type of thing it is. However, the forms have no physicality. They do not exist alone in the material world, and this is where the combination of form and matter becomes all-important. There may be the form tree, but to become a tree, that form must be instantiated and individualised by joining with primary matter. So form is the component which identifies the category of thing, for example, tree, dog, human, while matter is the component which gives it its individuality, so that tree, that dog, or that human. A form imprints itself on primary matter and cannot exist in the physical world without it, but at the same time it is the way in which a thing is known by the human mind when it is separated from its materiality that is, when we don't have the material object there in front of us. To quote the scholar David Knowles, form is the universal cognoscible element which specifies the individual and can be abstracted by the mind. 
Form gives something its species, but it is also the thing which we are thinking about when we think of, for example, tree. Another pair of terms which come up in the discussion of form and matter are actuality and potentiality. Pure potentiality is a further way to describe primary matter. It has no specific qualities of its own, but it has the potential to be absolutely anything. Form, on the other hand, is pure actuality, the supreme power to make something what it is, to bring it into actuality. So in the form-matter relationship, matter is the raw potentiality which is actualized and made something by form. In any materialized entity, so really anything that you see in the world around you, there is this inseparable, interdependent relationship of actualizing form and potential matter. When we move into the medieval Christian period, the relationships and definitions become even more subtle. St Thomas Aquinas was a 13th century theologian who is often attributed with having harmonised Aristotelian philosophy and Christian belief, which on the surface appear to be two very different, even incompatible, things. He extended Aristotle's categories of actuality and potentiality and made the distinction of essence and existence. As a Christian, he believed that all things are made by God, and in fact that they have being, that is, they are, because they participate in existence, which originates in God. So everything in the world is, because God is. In this way he differs from Aristotle, who had no sense of a God, who was the source of all creation, and upon whom the continuing existence of that creation depended from moment to moment. According to Aquinas, essence is the potentiality of a thing, a thing's potential to be something, while existence is the act which gives essence being. It is not part of the essence of any created being that it has to exist. It only exists in so far as it participates in existence itself. In this way, every created being is therefore dependent on the source of existence. That is, every created being is dependent upon God. Now, this doesn't mean that God initially creates individual things and then these creations go off and be on their own. It means that at every moment they exist because their existence is continually actualized by God. In God himself, there is no distinction between essence and existence. He has no essence or potentiality to be other or more than he is, because he is in an absolute way. Existence is an intrinsic, defining part of his essence. So we can summarise that for Aquinas, created beings have existence, whereas God is existence. The final aspect I'd like to explore is these ideas in relation to the specific case of the human being. Both Aristotle and Aquinas, developing from him, state that the soul is the form of the body. If we remember that the form is that which makes something what it is, that without form a thing cannot be anything, then the importance of this relationship becomes clear. 
Without a soul, a body is incomplete. It is really no thing, or more specifically, it is not really a human being. In contrast to other forms, however, the human soul does have a substantive existence of its own. It can exist without a body. But in this state, it is not perfect. For a soul's nature to be complete, it must fulfill its role of being the form of a body. All these are ideas that Dante engages with throughout his work, and certainly in the Commedia itself. Think of the figure of Brancadoria in Inferno 33, who is so evil that even before death his soul is unnaturally separated from his body, making him no longer fully human. One of the most interesting aspects that Dante engages with is the state of souls existing without bodies, which is of course what we see all the way through his journey through the afterlife. In fact, it's something he often draws our attention to, often to great poetic and dramatic effect. Think about the reaction of the disembodied souls in purgatory on seeing Dante's shadow, which proves that he is still in the combined state of body and soul. He specifically talks about the nature of the relation of body and soul in Purgatorio 25, when we hear Statius' explanation of human generation. In Canto 14 of Paradiso, we even find that the souls whom Dante meets in heaven, who seem to be so perfect and so glorious, will be more pleasing when they assume their flesh again at the resurrection. This is because the most perfect state of any created being is when form and matter, actuality and potentiality, and in the case of the human being, soul and body, are joined. <laughs> 